You are now listening to the December 2nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible. Hello, this is Nicole with Let's Read the Bible. When someone points out someone else's mistake and says, This is not the way to do it. You should do it this way. Some people accept it and correct their mistake by saying, Oh, I see. Thank you. However, some people deny their mistake and make excuses like, No, it is not my fault. I just did it because the person in front of me did it wrong. Or, No, I didn't do it that way. Instead of acknowledging it, there are people who look for various reasons to justify their mistakes rather than admit them. Of course, it is not a pleasant thing when someone points out our mistakes. Our defense mechanisms kick in, and we tend to make excuses or blame others. That is our sinful nature. In Genesis 4, God advises Cain, who was about to commit a sin, saying, If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. However, Cain did not say, Oh, I understand. I will try to control my sin. But rather, he did not listen to God's advice and acted according to his emotions, killing his younger brother Abel. This was the first terrible murder between brothers in human history. When God asked Cain, Where is your brother Abel? Cain did not repent of his mistake, but instead said, Am I my brother's keeper? and got angry with God. This is the nature of a sinner. They do not acknowledge their mistakes, but get angry with those who point them out and try to help them. Proverbs 9 7 says, Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. If you rebuke a mocker or a wicked person, they will not humbly accept it, but instead insult or harm you. This is the behavior of those who hate being corrected. On the other hand, the wise person accepts the correction and is grateful for it. How are you all doing? When someone points out your mistakes and gives you advice or tries to help you correct them, how do you react? Do you respond like an arrogant or insolent person? Or do you respond with wisdom and acceptance? Please reflect and examine yourselves. Another thing to consider is the attitude of the person who points out someone else's mistake. When I receive criticism from someone, my attitude is important. But my attitude when pointing out someone else's mistake is even more important. This is because it can easily become condemnation and criticism. When we point out someone else's mistake, We should do so from a sincere heart that earnestly desires that person go in the right direction 
and from a heart of love for that person. Of course, not everyone will understand our sincerity. God loved Cain and pointed out his mistake, trying to help him avoid sin. But as we know, Cain did not accept God's words. Nevertheless, we must never abandon our love for others. We should pray for that person to leave sin behind and walk on the right path. And we should become people who share the truth with love. Proverbs 9.9 says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. I hope you become a wise person who receives advice with humility and a wise person who gives advice with love. Here is Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young woman to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live, and walk into the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and ears will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud, she is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house, she takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their ways. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that our guests are in the depths of Sheol.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Malachi Tressler of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix. Today's topic is Wondrous Law. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Malachi. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Daniel records uh, a testimony for us, a narrative for us, to show us what it looks like to maintain fidelity to God against those in power who sought to undermine the prophet Daniel's loyalty to God. The prophet Daniel was a wise and faithful servant of God who was living as an exile. He was living outside of Israel's promised land. In 605 BC, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had captured Jerusalem and took the kingdom of Judah captive. And so they carried away some of God's people and brought them to Babylon in order to try to get them to act more like Babylonians, to follow their laws rather than the law of God, to submit to their law rather than God's law. Daniel remained faithful to God's law and instruction. And over the years, Daniel grew in favor and in wisdom and even grew in influence with the king. Uh, By this point, Darius had become the king rather than Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, But there were other leaders within this kingdom who were not taking kindly to Daniel's rise to, to power and to respect in the eyes of the king. And so they plotted against him. They couldn't find anything that he had done wrong himself. He was blameless, above reproach. So they said, we're not going to find grounds for complaint against this Daniel guy unless we find it in connection with the law of God. So they convinced King Darius to issue a decree that would state for the next 30 days, anyone who would pray to any god or man other than the king would be thrown into a den of lions. And despite the hostility, despite the threat of punishment, Daniel remained steadfast in his devotion to God. He continued to pray three times a day, openly defying the king's decree. His rebellion here was not a rebellion against earthly authority in and of itself, but against the pressure to reject God's authority in his life. When Daniel's enemies caught him praying... They gleefully reported his actions to the king. They had trapped him. And so he was thrown into the den of lions. And then a stone was placed over the entrance to to seal his fate in there with the lions. But God shut the mouth of those lions, preventing them from harming Daniel. And the next morning when the king shows up, anxiously runs in and pulls the stone away to look inside, he found Daniel there alive and unharmed. He was overwhelmed by this demonstration of God's power 
and Daniel's faithfulness. And so the king ordered the conspirators who had plotted against him to be thrown into the den instead where they were immediately devoured. The story of Daniel in the lion's den illustrates the importance of standing firm in godly, good convictions, even in the face of great pressure and opposition. Daniel's persistence under persecution was built upon two things, his knowledge and trust of God's instruction, and second, his dependence upon God in prayer. So we're meditating over the next few weeks over uh, Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is all about rightly valuing God's revelation in words. This is the third uh, of our seven weeks as we're looking at the Psalm 119. We're thinking about the way that God has revealed truth and beauty and goodness to us through his words. And this is a long psalm because it's eight verses per Hebrew letter. It's written as a Hebrew acrostic. So there are eight verses for each of the 22 letters, which brings us to a total of 176 verses. And our big idea from this third set of verses is this. God's illumination of his revelation empowers our persistence in persecution. Hopefully that will make more sense as we carry on through the psalm this morning. We've broken it down in two parts. First, godly convictions rely upon God's action. We'll see that in the first set of four verses. And then in the second set of four verses, we ought to gain solace, comfort, in persecution by appealing to God. Verses 21 to 24. Let's pray as we begin. Father, this morning as we turn to your word, we recognize that your word instructs us to pray with great dependence upon you. That we can physically see these words with our eyes, but we don't always and in every circumstance truly see what your word is showing us. And so we need your Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts and minds in order to truly see it and to truly savor it, to rightly delight in your instruction. We recognize that this does not come to us naturally, but supernaturally. And so we ask you that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your law. We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, godly convictions depend upon God's action, and we'll see that in the first set of four verses, which I will read into our hearing one more time. Verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Uh, These four verses tie together a desperate dependence upon God for the psalmist. Uh, The psalmist is requesting to God that he would act for his benefit. Uh, He wants his convictions, his his, uh, firm, confident beliefs 
for all of life. He wants those to be based upon God's teaching. And he knows that he needs God to reach out first to show himself to be a teacher in order for him to be able to be the student. And notice what he requests from God, verse 17. Deal bountifully with me. Verse 18, open my eyes. Verse 19, don't hide your commandments from me. And so what we've seen in the previous section of verses already is that he knows, the psalmist knows, that there are essentially two paths to life. There is one path which leads to happiness, true happiness, human flourishing, and blessedness, which is the path that God lays out for us in his instruction, in his his Torah, his commandments. The other path is the path that we make up for ourselves, that path that we think will lead us to happiness, but because our hearts are shady, will inevitably lead us through sin and shame. So the psalmist knows that there are these two paths, he believes it, and he wants the better path. He wants to want the better path even more than he currently wants it, but he also knows that he is prone to stray away. He is prone to wander from that better path, and that frightens him. The psalmist, just like you and I, does not have the resources within himself to perpetually stay on the right path. He knows that he's going to walk this line of this narrow road that leads to happiness, that leads to God. If he's going to do that, he's going to need God's help. He wants good, righteous convictions about his life, but he wants to follow God's teaching. He wants to love what he ought to love. He wants to hate what he ought to hate, but he knows he can't do it by himself, and so he needs God to act. He needs God to act. So let's think just for a moment about two acts in which God makes himself known to us. Revelation and illumination. Revelation first. For our purposes this morning, here's what we mean by revelation. It's God disclosing or revealing information that would otherwise be unknown. We only know God because he has made himself knowable to us. Left to ourselves, we would not know who God is. We would know that a God exists. We can see that through creation. We know there's a powerful creator. So we could know about God, but we wouldn't be able to know him unless he took the initiative to make himself knowable to us, and he has. Through his mighty redemptive acts in history, and even then through his own inspired interpretation of those mighty acts as recorded for us in Scripture, God reveals himself to us as a savior, a redeemer. This is the very basic principle of what we believe about God's word, the the Bible, that it is not simply a collection of what some people in the ancient Near East thought about God. It's not their ruminations about who they imagine God to be. The Bible is a revelation from God himself to show us who he is. So God, the Holy Spirit, moved in the authors. Uh, We say he inspired their writing to reveal God's nature and character to us. God's word is his revelation in that sense, his revealing of himself to us. 
And so we are dependent upon God for his own self-revelation to us. And Scripture is just that. Is what we find in the Bible. It reveals God to us, and then it directs us to enjoy God himself. But notice what he prays in verse 18. Open my eyes. More literally, we could translate this as uncover my eyes and cause me to see, to behold wondrous things from your teaching, your law, your instruction. As we've mentioned before, when we talk about law, we're not simply talking about or merely talking about the, the Ten Commandments. It's his whole Torah, God's whole instruction, his revelation in words, which would have included the first five books of the Old Testament, which recorded and interpreted his mighty acts of redemption that we recorded like in the book of Exodus, chapter 7, where it says God redeemed Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders, those plagues and supernatural acts. They're referred to as wonders. So wonders here in Psalm 119 could be an allusion to the miraculous rescue of God's people, or maybe just in a broader sense, it's actually just things that go beyond our natural abilities to be able to understand. Either way, and this is what we must notice, He is praying and asking God to help him see what's already there. The wonderful things are already in the Bible for us to find. But again, and this is very important, we need our eyes opened to actually truly see them. We are by nature children of wrath. Our hearts are depraved, they're darkened, And because of that, even though Scripture is clear, if we're left to ourselves, we don't truly see what is in it. If we reject what is in Scripture, we can rest assured that the problem is not with Scripture, the problem is with us and our rebellious, ignorant hearts. We can understand this physically. Even the biggest, greatest library in the world with all the greatest records of human wisdom would be of no use If there was no light in that library, there is no book that can be read in the dark. This physical reality makes sense spiritually as well. We read in Romans 8 that the mind that is darkened, that is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, Romans 8, 7. That this is why we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened. It's Ephesians 1.18, as we've already sang earlier this morning, so that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. So if we want to find God's salvation in his word, even in the law of Moses, we need the Holy Spirit to uncover our eyes so that we might find the hope of the gospel. And we see this very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as well. I'll read for us verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope of the gospel, we are very bold, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, the old covenant, but their, their minds were hardened, speaking here of unbelieving Israelites. For to this day, when they read the old covenant... 
the Torah, the instruction, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, saying Moses is just saying another way of the law because Moses wrote the law. Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. From this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So let's try to summarize what we've found here. The Holy Spirit, through Christ, unveils the eyes of our hearts that we might find freedom from our sinful ignorance in God's word and to turn to him in faith. Just as the Holy Spirit revealed God to us through his words as it is recorded for us in scripture, the Holy Spirit must work in us to allow us to truly see what he has for us in his word. He has to flip the lights on in our heart in order that we might behold the wondrous things that are in his word. And so to to have and to maintain godly, righteous convictions that will keep us on the happy path which leads to God, which come from God's revelation, we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to give us eyes of faith to behold God the Son in his word. This is what we mean by illumination. Is God enabling us to truly see and love that which he already revealed? So because of our depravity and because the prince of the power of the air is putting a veil over our hearts and minds, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we cannot accept the scriptures as divine truth as authoritative or as good for us, our true knowledge of the wonderful things that are in Scripture is an effect of God's opening our eyes by the illuminating grace of His Holy Spirit. So hopefully you can see uh, there is an utter dependence upon God's mercy and grace in order to be able to see and trust His gospel, the good news that He has for us. So this means that we, like the psalmist, must pray for the Holy Spirit's help. And he will guide us into all truth. So not new revelations, because scripture is sufficient. God has said what he needs to say. But our true knowledge of wonderful things are dependent upon God. Scripture is sufficient, we don't need new, but we do need to understand what he has already given us in his word. There is an absolute uh, helpless humility Uh, that is evident in the psalmist's language here in these first four verses. He calls himself a servant of God and a sojourner on this earth. He is humbly dependent upon God's guidance for himself in this world. And that's a good place to be. Humble submission and recognition of God's authority as expressed through his word. Because nothing is going to take us further from the happy path to God than a confidence in our own wisdom and ability apart from him. If God has led you to the truth, friend, be thankful. Be compassionate towards those whose hearts are still darkened 
reach out to them in mercy, reach out to them in prayer, knowing that only God himself can rescue us from the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. The humility of that one who follows God's path in utter dependence upon him is put in contrast here within this psalm to the prideful one who willfully and self-confidently rejects his commandments. Point two, gain solace in persecution by appealing to God. Verses 21 through 24, one more time. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. So this section introduces some new characters in this psalm. Uh, Up until this point, we've only seen God and the psalmist, and the psalmist reflecting on his relationship with God. But here, the lens is pushing out, and we're seeing that there are other characters within the scene here. There are those who are hostile to God and towards God's servant, who is the psalmist who's writing. Notice in verse 21, it describes these people in three ways. It says they're insolent, which is, uh, just means arrogant, it means prideful, uh, the opposite of the humility that the, the, the psalmist is embodying. It says they are accursed. This is the same word that is used in Genesis 3, where God speaks those curses that have resulted from Adam and Eve's fall from grace. And then it says they wander from God's commandments. So we've got three perspectives on these characters here in this scene. And really, this is just three distinct angles of viewing the same reality. To be insolent is to go your own way. To be accursed is to wander from God's commandments. And to be insolent is to be accursed. Three different ways of speaking of the same reality. And we see the way that these people are acting towards God's servant here, the psalmist, Because he has kept to God's instruction, as he says, he is now the target of their scorn. He's the target of their contempt, verse 22 says. And then verse 23 introduces a subset of these prideful people. It says those who are in authority over the psalmist. It says princes. It's those who sit in authority. Those princes are plotting against him. More literally, there are rulers who are sitting and speaking against him. So we can begin to feel, I believe, the tension that he is under. He is committed to submitting to God's authority as the king of kings, as a sojourner on this earth. But there are those around him, his peers and those in power, whose darkened hearts mock God's authority and anyone who would submit their lives to it. So he prays that he would maintain his godly convictions in the face of that that pressure. If he's going to withstand the slander of these insolent, self-assured people around him, he's going to need to really delight in God's law. He's going to really need to love God's word in order to maintain fidelity in the face of this social pressure. That love is going to need to be strong to keep him from caving in to the hostility. Because we recall, he already feels within himself prone to wander from this good path. 
But now what we see here is there are, is outward acts upon him too. Uh, outwardly, he is being compelled by others to stray from God's path. And so perhaps now we understand the desperation, that dependence that is so evident in the set of first four verses from uh, 17 to 20. That dependence upon God is more clear when we understand the hostility that he faces. So let me just try to paraphrase the concept here. God, I am your servant. I know that you're the king of kings, but I am living under authorities here on earth that are making a mockery out of your authority. They think I'm wasting my life by submitting to your instruction. They're insulting me. They have contempt for me because I value your word. But really, the contempt, the reproach that I am experiencing is because I'm your servant. They're actually opposed to you. But really, that attempt to, to protect myself really should be me trying to protect and value rightly your word, because the reproach that I am receiving is actually due to you. The reproach that they have for you is falling on me. So God, would you rebuke them and open my eyes so that I might be drawn into the wondrous things of your word, because I need to see it. They have to be my delight. I must long for your guidance because if I start to drift, if I start to coast, I am going to be swept away in the current of a culture that opposes you so strongly, and I don't want that. I want your instruction to be my counselors, not the ignorance of the insolent, accursed ones. So, Lord, would you please deal bountifully with me so that I might thrive by keeping your word? Now, it's not too hard to draw connections to our contemporary day, is it? I trust that uh, many of us feel similar tensions. You know, the respect for God's word, uh, the respect for the authority of God's word, waxes and wanes over time and even across civilizations. But there is, it seems to be, a real increasing present pressure to change our ethics to turn from God's clear instruction in order to keep up to date. We don't want to be thought of as backwards. Uh, we don't want to be thought of as unenlightened fools for rejecting the culture's ever-changing values. And there are powerful, influential people, uh, whether it's at your work or in the marketplace, your family, or increasingly within the government, who speak against those who keep God's testimonies. They would have God's people be like them and wander from God's commandments, to be accursed, to celebrate pride rather than to cultivate humility. Uh, this past week, uh, one who is like a prince, the President of the United States, flew a flag from the White House that explicitly represents a prideful rejection of God's commandments. Uh, and then he tweeted a picture of it and said, this is who we are as Americans. We celebrate this. The implication, of course, is that if you don't, well, you don't really belong. And so you can feel the scorn and contempt. You should be ashamed. Those in power who are speaking against the ones who want to submit to God's instruction so how do we deal with that pressure? 
certainly not by being evil or by giving in to the impulse of the flesh to hate. It must be by following the Holy Spirit, embodying the fruit of the Holy Spirit, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. How do we deal with this pressure? Well, before we jump into the psalm and be like, I am, I am the psalmist, it would be a better thing for us to understand this psalm in light of Christ. What does this psalm mean through the lens of Christ? So we look to Jesus and we recall Jesus' teaching. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we look to Jesus and we recall his life and his ministry, there has never been anyone as blameless, as innocent, as righteous, as above reproach as Jesus. He truly and fully walked in the way of God's instruction in every way, and all of the enmity of man that was against God was directed fully and truly at Christ himself. The authorities plotted against him. They insulted him. They slandered him. Indeed, they put him to death. He didn't need to suffer. And if he was at all concerned for his own safety, for the prosperity of his own life in the short term, he could have taken an easier path that is, after all, what Satan had offered him in his temptation in the desert. But Christ bore all the scorn and contempt for righteousness' sake so that all who would trust and hide in him by faith might know that they will never be condemned by the one authority whose judgment ultimately and finally will matter, who is the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. So we look to Jesus and we recall his example. Just as Daniel turned to God in prayer during times of hostility and times of pressure, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced his greatest temptation and pressure, and he prayed. He prayed that the path of suffering before him might be removed. Nevertheless, he wanted God's will to be done, and so he willingly suffered and died in order to take the sting away from death for all who would trust in him. Psalm 119, verses 17 through 24. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. So our instruction here as Christians seems to be clear. We ought to prayerfully ask God to open our eyes, to illuminate his word to us, to empower us 
in our persistence in times of persecution and slander and hostility. If you're facing slander and hostility, pray about it. Take it to the Lord in prayer. He may remove that slander, and he may simply remove the sting of that slander. But in any case, we turn in humble dependence upon God in prayer. And we would ask that he open the eyes of our heart so that his counsel might be our delight. And friends, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let me invite you to pray that the Holy Spirit would cause you to have the desire to turn to him in faith, that you would want what you ought to want, that you would follow this path of happiness that leads to God himself, which is faith in Christ.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. living a life and you are not submitting to God in the areas that he has declared in your life, if you're not submitting, you are a huge target and Satan is going to take advantage of you. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Now he's talking about repentance here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Confess your sin. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is what we are to do. And when we are not humbling ourselves, we are targets. We will be used by him. Now, in the same light, unforgiveness is the same thing. When we are unforgiving, we are used by Satan. If you have unforgiveness in your life, you are living a horrible life because you may not be saved. But if you are saved, I guarantee you are miserable because you will never be joyful or happy disobeying God, especially in an area that is so great as unforgiveness when Christ has forgiven us for so much. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, But if you forgive anything, I forgive also, Paul writes. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ in order that no advantage be taken of us, that's believers, by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his scheme. Second Corinthians 2, verse 10 and 11. Satan uses our sinfulness as a huge lever and leverage in our lives. And it's ugly to see that in the life of a believer. Don't let it happen. Confess your sin. Walk rightly before the Lord. Yes, we mess up, but don't hold on to it. Don't you dare hold on to these things. Anger and unforgiveness, worldliness, which will show in your actions. So then we have a most powerful foe. He's our constant adversary. He's the accuser, murderer, liar, father of lies. He's a monstrous reptile, cunning serpent, wicked deception. He uses it to tempt us to trust our own wisdom, to doubt God's word, to doubt God's goodness. He takes advantage of us when we walk in an unworthy manner. So what are we to do? Well, notice not only do we see his schemes, but he says we've got to struggle. This is why we should be strong in the Lord. We're to be strong in the Lord and put on his armor, which we'll look at in a minute. First of all, because of the schemes to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. But secondly, we have a spiritual foe who is coming after us. Look at verse 12, back in our passage, Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces, 
of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We're to put on the full armor of God. We are to stand firm, be strengthened in the Lord, because we are in a spiritual struggle. We're to put on the full armor. The struggle means literally wrestling. It refers to -to hand-to-hand combat. And our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Buddhists, the atheists, the Muslims, dead denominations, or the Pope. It's not against the wave of felt, need-seeker, sensitive charlatans. It's not against politicians. It's not against those who attack us, persecute us, revile us, hate us, maliciously slander. Our struggle is not against them, but they are all used by Satan. Our struggle ultimately is against Satan. He says it is not against flesh and blood. Indeed, those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And yet we know Satan does his dirty work through people. No doubt about that. Paul prayed to be protected from evil men who do not have faith, and ultimately the evil one. We know from John 15 that if the world hated Christ, it's going to hate us. We're not greater than our master. If they persecuted him, they're going to persecute us. They persecute the Lord. But we ultimately know who is behind it. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll get to this, Lord willing, in our study of Second Thessalonians. Paul says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did with you, and that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men. That's the means in which it comes. For not all have faith. But notice what's underneath it. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. He is the one behind it. Our battle is not against Flesh and blood. Therefore, we don't fight as though we are fighting against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual war. Our battle is the struggles against these rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of the stars. I don't have time to explain it. These are spiritual levels of authority and wickedness within Satan's domain. These are his minions, all that stuff. It's a spiritual struggle. Against the world forces of this darkness. Sounds pretty strong to me. But do not forget, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So they are powerful, dark, worldly, wicked, spiritual forces. So our weapons must not be of the flesh or we will fail. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Maybe that's why some of you are failing as you're being attacked. Because you're not following and obeying the word of God to be strengthened in the Lord and to put on the full armor as we're going to see to allow Christ to strengthen you through faith and to renew your heart and mind with his truth about you and about him. You see, these forces are strong, but we see in Ephesians 1 that Christ is far above. Verse 21, all rule, authority, power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And we know from Genesis 3 that he would crush Satan. And we know on the cross that he did through his death. We know on the cross that Jesus Christ defeated Satan and his minions. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which 
were hostile to us. Isn't that wonderful what he's going to do to that? And he took them out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Wonderful. When he had disarmed, notice this, the rulers and authorities, he disarmed them and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. It is through Christ we have victory over our spiritual enemies and the devil. 1 John 3.8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. We saw in Hebrews chapter 2 earlier that he died for us, that through death he might render powerless or impotent the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. So Satan is the defeated foe, but he will ultimately be destroyed. His destiny is sure. We see in Matthew 28, 41, Jesus says, Then he will say to those who have left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 20, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Romans 16:19, For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan at your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The reality is Satan is a defeated foe, but yet he has a short leash in which he is able to come against the people of God, and he does continually, but God has declared how we can stand against him. Some people go out and try to rebuke him. Some people try to go use spiritual warfare techniques. Some people go on the offensive, but that's not what God tells us to do. Back in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The first thing we must do, finally, as for the rest, from now on, Paul says, from this point on, put on the full armor of God. Be strong in the Lord. And the strength of his might, be strong in the Lord. Now, the only way you can be strong in the Lord is if you are in the Lord. You have to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not saved, you don't have that relationship. You are in Satan's domain. But if you trust in Christ for salvation, calling out to him for salvation, he'll save you and you'll be delivered from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You see, without Christ, you're on your own. But we in Christ are on our own also apart from abiding in Christ. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Now, the way this is said here, it's in a passive voice, which means allow yourself to be strengthened by the Lord. And what does that mean? The term be strengthened speaks of be given the ability to do something. Endunamo. Continually allow yourself to be strengthened in the Lord. How do we do this? It's by faith. It's by total reliance on Christ. Continually be strengthened in the Lord. How do I become strong in Christ? I'm strong when I am weak. When I am abiding in Christ and not trusting in myself. I'm strong when I am weak. When I rely on Christ. Be strong in the Lord. And then notice this, in the strength of his might, kratos, strength in his might, ishkosh, inherent power, powerful God, way above all. Be strong 
in God's power and strength. Be strengthened by Him. When you trust in Christ, you are strengthened. Very clearly, we are to do so. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, back a little bit, in verse 18. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's not a very good translation. You might have a different translation or a note. Having had the eyes of your heart enlightened. It's already happened. Because of this, then, he says here, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and notice this, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the strength of his might. There's our phrase. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and dominion in every name which is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Rely on Christ. That you would know the resurrection power available to you to obey the Lord and be protected from the evil one. That you would know that. That you would believe what God has said. The Apostle Paul, when he had a thorn in the flesh, says this, Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. 2 Corinthians 12.8 And he said to me, My grace is sufficient. My unmerited favor towards you. Everything from me, nothing from you. That is sufficient. For power, and it's pulling his power, is perfected in weakness. Now, weakness, there has to be faith with that, right? We recognize how weak we are and we trust God and how strong he is. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of God may dwell in me. I'm going to exalt in my weaknesses. I am helpless, but he is strong and he is great. Every situation you're in, I'm helpless, but he is great and he is strong and he is way above this. And I trust him that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulty for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. You know, God does allow difficulties in our lives so that we would rely on Christ, that we would trust in him. And instead of complaining and grumbling and falling apart, that we would trust Christ. Trust Christ. Now, he's compassionate. He understands our frame. But he's telling us what to do for our good. And when we don't listen, we will suffer. So God commands us to be strengthened with his power. You know, we're not adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, trusting in him, we will fail. Remember what Peter said concerning the devil prowling about like a roaring lion? But resist him firm in the faith, in your trust in what God has said and in the God who said it. Resist Satan, trust in God. Indeed, what extinguishes every fiery missile? It is, what? The shield of faith. Believing in the Lord and what he has said extinguishes every fiery missile. Do you realize how serious this is? When you trust in your own wisdom, when you rely on your own strength, you are in deep trouble. You're an easy target for the schemes of the devil, our adversary. So where does your strength come through? Where do you get your strength whether it's in marriage, at school, at work, raising your kids, finances, serving, where do you get your strength? Is it from Christ? Continually, personally trusting Jesus? 
Not some phony baloney trust, but a real trust in the person of Jesus, believing his word, or do you rely on yourself? You see, we need to trust in the Lord. But not only do we trust in the Lord, we need to clothe ourselves with his truth. We need to renew our minds with it. Notice our passage. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. Now we're going to see that has to do with the truth that God has revealed. We've got to put it on. Remember what Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10. He said this, For though we walk, verse 3, in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. He believes that, and that's true. We're so wimpy at times. Oh, this is happening. No, trust the Lord. This isn't prideful. He's talking about the truth. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought do you have a rain on your thoughts in Christ? You just let them flow about situations that have happened to you, stuff that's going on, or do you take it, hold it captive to the obedience of Christ, allow Christ to have control of them? We're in a war, and we're weak. And if we recognize we're truly weak and we trust in Christ, then we're strong. It's very serious. So we're not only commanded to rely on Christ, we're commanded to renew our minds. Look at this. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What's the full armor of God? We don't have time to go through this. We're out of time. But I just want to just review the pieces really quickly. And it's not simply a mantra of things we go through, but there's three things that have already happened that we just appropriate by faith that it has already happened. And there are three things that we are to do. He says here, therefore, take up to because we're in a spiritual battle. We have a foe. Verse 13, take up the form of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. That's in the power of Christ, by the way. And now putting on, he says, first of all, and there's three participles, having girded, having put on, having shod. They're already done. Eris participles, completed action. The first thing, having girded your loins here with truth. That's foundational. The truth is in Jesus. John 17, 17, sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth. Psalm 119, it's his truth, thy word is truth, right? We see it. The sum of thy word is truth, and every one of thy righteous ordinances is everlasting. Having girded your loins of the truth, you know the truth, you know the God of the truth. Rely on him and apply his truth to your heart. Having girded your loins with truth. Renew your mind with it. Having put on the blessed bit of righteousness. You know, when we trusted in Christ, we became righteous. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. When the temptation comes because you failed, but you've confessed, remember, we are righteous in Christ. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Then he talks about having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel peace. Kind of an interesting sentence. It's hard to translate. But the reality is we have peace with God. We walk in the context of peace with the living God. We are not at enmity with him. We were. The gospel has brought peace. God is not angry at you. He can be grieved. We have peace with God. 
We've entered into a relationship with the truth. We're righteous and we have peace with God. And then we have three things to actively do. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith, which you'll be able to extinguish every flaming missiles of the evil one. Believe what God has said, or you're a target. And the helmet of salvation, we see in Thessalonians, the helmet of the hope of salvation. Protect your mind with the future realities of the salvation you have in Christ. Actively think about what Christ has promised and your future salvation. Protect your mind. The helmet of salvation. And as we see in Thessalonians, the helmet of the hope of salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Apply the truth to the conflict at hand. Believe what God has said. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. You can turn there, actually, Romans 13. And this do, verse 11, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Amen. Every day, one bit closer. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Another amen. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Stop doing what's evil. Confess it. Get rid of those things. Get rid of those thoughts. Confess them and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, nor sexual promiscuity or sexuality, nor in strife or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Put on Christ. Allow his word to take over your heart. Allow his word to control your actions and your reactions. Trust in him. Rely on him. Believe what he said. Look forward to what he's promised. Put on the full armor of God. Put on Christ. Be strong in him and believe what he has said. Christ is ultimately the full armor. He's everything behind it. It's ultimately Christ and what he has done. So then, clothe your mind with his truth about you, believe it, and rely on Christ. So how can we be victorious in this intense spiritual struggle? Be strengthened in the Lord and put on the full armor that we would be able to resist and that you'd be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Strength confide our striving.
ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.